BL, welcome back for another episode. Hello, James. How are you? Good to uh, talk with you again. Good, good. What, what have you been up to, mate? Well, I'm, uh, I still uh, would say I'm in that transitioning period uh, in relation to retirement. And when people are asking me, I'm at the, at the moment, I'm sort of saying, well, I, I feel like a, li- a little bit of limbo. Don't feel like I'm on holidays, but I'm also realising that uh, I don't work anymore. So it's an interesting place. But in terms of what I've been up to, gosh, James, the uh, let me see, the scooter is not operating. I've got an issue there, so I'm not riding the Vesper at the moment, which is frustrating. Uh, Bailey, the Wonder Greyhound, uh, we're settling in, and the problem I alluded to uh, and shared with our listeners in our last episode has been rectified, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh He's doing really well and uh, we're all settling in together. And um, I've uh, one thing I am doing, James, which is a bit of a worry, I'm spending lots of money on other motorbikes. Goodness. So there's a, there's a whole range of bikes that have been sold and purchased since we last spoke. Wow. Is it is it like a hobby of buy and selling or is it buy to hold? Or? Oh, I don't know if it's a hobby, mate. It's... Um, I would say this, I certainly have enjoyed over my life buying and selling. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is, but I get a buzz out of um, searching for that next uh, next purchase, doing the research, scouring the classifieds and um, making the purchase. So, for example, the latest purchase involved a, uh, a sprint down the Hume Highway in a uh, rented uh, budget van yeah. uh, to a place called Crookwell. Where's that? uh, Oh, it's just out of Goulburn. Yeah, right. Beautiful little place, actually. Beautiful little country town just out of of Goulburn. So that was a a three-and-a-half-hour drive there and back uh, to pick up that latest purchase. And I uh, probably the week before, I think, I was out at um, a place called um, Dunny Doo or a place... Yeah, Dunny Doo. Dunny Doo, James. That's where... Um, Go ahead. No, I was going to say when when growing up and we used to drive out um, to Dubbo and then to Burke and then to Wenaring, I remember always passing Dunny Doo. It always yeah. stood out, obviously, for the name. It, it's, a, it's a funny name. Just saying <laughs> Dunny Doo makes people laugh. But I picked up a motorbike there for my younger son who's just started to um, to get into motorcycle riding. And, oh. uh, we packed that in the little van and spent the night at uh, the pub out there and had a great night. Good fun. Oh. When you're flipping it, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. with the motorbikes, are you doing any modifications to them before you're selling? Or it? Uh, not normally. No, not if I can uh, avoid it because the minute you spend any money on these things, mate, that means you've got to try and get some more money back the other end. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm certainly not making a living out of this, let me tell you. <laughs> it's, um, it's just satisfying a, 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 um, a thing for me. I think no could, financial gain. Yeah, I could see a documentary series on this, a Netflix original with Brad Lewis, the motorbike flipper. Well, I tell you what, James, <laughs> if this if this podcasting takes off, there could yeah. be a whole series of podcasts. Yeah, I like BL, the idea of that. Uh, BL on the road, a la Picker style. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you could have uh, a people on that you're buying from and selling from, and each purchase could be a new episode. Uh, it's it's got some potential, I think, James. Well, BL, uh, I'm sure this is not interesting our educational yeah, uh, listeners, but that's uh, right. it's amusing oh, me. 
on that note, mate, what's what's hot on your socials? What's been standing out to you? Well, um, I, I was um, obviously I, I took note of the uh, the fifteen years uh, this week since uh, the then Prime Minister um, Rudd apologised to uh, the stolen generation because I was reflecting 15 years ago I was a deputy principal at a school on the north shore of Sydney and uh, I remember preparing for that day thinking well this is this is historic this is a big moment and um, it's really important for us to acknowledge that and share it with the students so the school I was at at the time had a uh, public address system which you could um, you could broadcast to every classroom yeah. And when the uh, the broadcast came across, which was also live on radio, I hooked into that feed, um, made a bit of an announcement to the um, the school, and we fed that uh, live feed through each classroom um, because I thought that was important. And uh, at the time, I remember saying to the students and to the teachers, try and remember this moment because it's like all those big moments in history. People will ask where you were on that day. And obviously this week there was a lot of um, a conversation through the different socials about where people were and how they felt. Um, I think the, uh, the big question that came out of reflecting over that 15 years is what's happened? What have we done? What have we achieved? Um, what's changed? And um, I guess from an educational point of view, um, I think I struggled with those questions. I, I, you know, I, I'm not really sure what have we achieved. Um, I don't know whether – was there talk in um, schools, James, around this? Oh, again, Brad, I think it would be based upon the individual context in each collection of schools. You know, I think what was done within those areas. Um, obviously, on the department socials within Yammer, um, there, you know, was posts recognising and calling out um, what you shared with us. But also for our school, we, we took a moment to recognise um, and there was different discussions had based upon the different age groups. Um, but I'm still with you, Brad, with where you were reflecting upon the question because I'm not sure either. Mm. You know? I, I got, I'll be honest, James. I Some of the comments I, I read, and I know you shouldn't pay too much attention to the social comments because it does bring out the crazies but you know my heart was breaking a little bit with some of the nastiness that I I saw in writing and people were saying you know, some pretty terrible stuff about this situation I guess um, when I thought about it more okay well we you know as a country we we showed a level of maturity and we apologized which is which was I thought a fantastic first step and a really important one um, there's been obviously a lot of conversation around the timing of Australia Day and that's only been recent conversation and I think there's some, some really good debate going around that topic. Um, and the 2023, the, the referendum this year, I think is probably the next logical step after the apology. But what worries me that it's taken 15 years from that act of kindness and, and um, regret to... Uh, again, the next step around a referendum. And I guess in my heart, I, I have a fear that that referendum won't get up, Yeah, which w would be, um, from a personal point of view, something that's, um, you know, really sad for our country. 
Yeah, it's like you said on when it was, you know, going around and you were calling out the referendum there, the voice um, that's mm. been shared and obviously um, getting a lot of voice in the media at, at the moment. Uh, again, with your reservations, I'm really interested to, to watch that space because I think it's something that is so easy to achieve and it just seems like it should have already happened. But I guess... To, to mainstream people, I guess... Yeah. Um... I agree. It, it's to me, it's a bit of a no-brainer, and and again, what a great step forward again for this country. Yeah. If uh, if that yes vote gets up, um, and um, you know the indigenous uh, population is acknowledged in our constitution, which to me is like, wh why not? Yes. But um, uh, and having that voice in parliament and and being able to give advice to the government of the day on on those issues having that, uh, that structure in place can only be a good thing, in my opinion. But, yes, I'm with you. We watch this space with our fingers crossed and, and hope in our heart that, um, you know, the right thing happens. Yeah. Well, like what about you, you Jim? What, what caught your eye? I guess earlier, um, it was, sorry, it was at the end of last week, um, ACARA, the Australian Curriculum Assessment, Assessment and Reporting Authority, pushed out an update regarding that plan. Obviously, over the last several years, there's been that transition for all schools to be online for the completion of NAPLAN. And, you know, right. this this is going to be one of the, you know, the first years it's been a cycle and they've had to push things back and change their timeline um, with moving all students to complete NAPLAN online. But this right. year is the first year and they've moved NAPLAN forward um, to be right. now March with the expectation that schools are going to get the results back a lot faster because it's completed online so that they can actually use that information to plan and inform uh, decision-making at a school level. But within the changes, they've, from my understanding at, at this time, they've gotten rid of the bans um, when communicating to parents and to schools about students' achievement within the relevant tests. Mm -hmm. They've now identified four levels of achievement. So parents and schools will find out overall for a child if they are working at exceeding, if they are strong, if they are developing, and if they need additional support. Whereas traditionally before that, there was all the different bands and based upon year three, five, seven, mm. and nine, there was different levels of, uh, of expectations. So I'm assuming they're still Probably going... Probably not a um, parent-friendly language. Yeah. This so, sounds more in line with our reporting too, doesn't it? Yeah. So I, I like the idea that it's going to be in, in more parent-friendly language. But one of the hard things, I guess, for schools in, you know, obviously the last kind of um, 10 years of NAPLAN data is we're all now moving online. It's all mm -hmm. adaptive testing where it's moving based upon the needs of the students. And mm -hmm. now there's the different proficiency standards. So I think that it's going to be harder for schools to compare their data previously to now mm. because obviously schools already would have had that transition some earlier than others went from paper to online because some schools have been doing that for a while now. But mm. now that you can completely getting rid of the bands, I think, and I know a lot of schools writing their strategic improvement plans, some of them used um, referenced information about students, you know, moving from a certain band to another or a certain percentage of students achieving in the top two bands. So well, there, was a, there was a very strong emphasis on that, using that data to, uh, to guide the, the next few years of uh, school growth. 
yeah. particularly uh, in discussions with our directors at the time. So I agree. And I, I actually think, too, the timing of the assessment is significant. I think that's going to make a big difference in a, a whole range of ways. Um, in my last few months uh, before finishing up, I kept stressing and reinforcing with the, the staff that you've got to be ready to go next term. Yeah. This was in term four because the, you traditionally would have started prepping in term one yeah. in ready for a, um, a later rollout. But you said, guys, you know, start thinking now, start thinking about your, your provisions and your, your logistics and um, um, the support that you're going to have to provide uh, individual students. So I think there's a whole range of things there, including uh, most importantly, the ones that you've outlined, that it, it's going to make a difference. Yeah. And I'm, um... Really interested to, um, for I guess our disadvantaged um, families where students at homes might have PCs or Chromebooks, mm. etc., and these kids might be doing tutoring where at home where they're actually using those devices. So their technology literacy, I think that's going to create um, a skew possibly within the data mm. because some of our students go home, they might be doing tutoring online, they might have computers at home where they're doing their work and assignments. But for a lot of our disadvantaged kids, they don't go home and they might have a tablet, which is completely different to working on a laptop or a Chromebook, etc. So I'm interested to see if technology literacy can will impact on student achievement because they're too mm. focused on not answering the questions, but how do I use this device? Oh, absolutely. So, and, and that's been an argument for a few years. Um, that this is going to make a difference and uh, perhaps disadvantage some groups in our student population and advantage others. Others, yeah. Um, are you suggesting you think we might need a few years of this before we can start looking at it as a valid data source uh, or one well, that can be comparable? Yeah, I think comparable. And it's really contextual because, you know, some schools use PAT testing online. Some schools yeah. use already online testing regularly. So even maybe those disadvantaged students, at least they're being exposed at school and they're used to that testing environment. Mm. But I guess schools that don't do traditional online testing where students are exposed and it might be just NAPLAN online testing, they don't do anything at home with it. I think they're the ones from the technology literacy oh. perspective that might be most disadvantaged because we talk about cognitive overload and thinking and trying to process and do new things. If I'm trying Absolutely. to focus on how to do this, yeah, then answering a the question. Yeah. No, good points, James. So, um, interesting in space to watch. Yeah, and I'm interested to see, like, obviously within the Department of Education, um, how that data then feeds to a platform called Scout, what that may look like this time. So, again, watch your space, BL. Yeah, so I'm still the interested bystander, mate. <laughs> well, I'll be Somewhat honest. relieved I'm not participating, but... Um, Happy to stand on the footpath and watch what's happening. Yeah. Well, BL, the, the story and I guess a topic of discussion that I want to go into with you mm. um, for this episode is all around professional learning. Okay. Yep. Because when I started working with you um, under your leadership, um, you presented and you had implemented a professional learning model that I found is innovative. Um, it's differentiated and it truly puts and treats teachers as adult learners at the forefront of their learning because uh -huh. I find that schools often struggle within this area. Um, and I just want to talk about when I say professional learning from a teacher perspective, 
What do you think the purpose of that is, firstly? Well, the, the, the model that you're referring to, um, it, um, it came from um, discussions with staff um, early in my principalship at, um, at my last school. Um, and you might um, might remember we had a process that I called the RAPS process. Um, and it was basically a process where we, um, through informal discussions, we identified issues or concerns or um, areas of interest that we wanted to explore further. Um, and then through expression of interest, we formed uh, a RAPS panel, as we called it, uh, which included um, a cross-section of stakeholders across the school community, casual teachers, SLSOs, students, parents, staff, so on. Um, and we worked through four qu quadrants. Um, and the first two quadrants, it was critical that we remained uh, non-judgmental. And we simply examined what was the evidence telling us in relation to the matter that we'd had identified as the focus of our RAPS panel. Um, and then the last two quadrants um, allowed us to um, basically, um, having identified evidence, analysed the evidence, annotated the evidence, we could then start saying, well, what are we going to do about this? What's it telling us? And what should we do? And what are some recommendations we could put forward? And from one of those panels, um, uh, we, we established one around professional learning. And the recommendations from that panel led to the professional learning model that we implemented um, at Gosford. And really, you summarised it in your introduction then. It was, it was underpinned by adult learning. Um, and we asked some, some serious questions. You know, why are we doing it? What's the purpose of it? What do we hope to get from it? Um, and what are some really important aspects to professional learning? And we identified that, um, that as... Uh, as leaders within school, we needed to recognise that we were working with adult learners and that within that, adult learners have different learning styles, they have different learning preferences, they have different times of the day they want to learn, they learn by accessing their professional learning from different mediums. So we, we argued that the model of, which most schools still implement, you know, Wednesday afternoon, we bring all the staff together at 3 o'clock, 3.15. We all sit there to 4.15 looking at our watches, thinking, hope this gets it over and done quickly. Um, and we present professional learning that sort of hits the middle. There'd be, um, you know, a third of the participants completely disengaged. There'd be a third who it was hitting the mark for them. And there'd be another third who were probably equally disengaged, but for different reasons. So we said, let's scrap that. Um, and what we implemented was that, and this is what I put to staff at the time, if we're going to cancel and if we're going to stop doing a Wednesday afternoon staff meeting, for example, which goes for one hour, and if we did that every school week over a year, it was an equivalent of around 40 hours of professional learning. So what I said to staff was, I want you to access the professional learning that's important to you, that's going to make a difference to your teaching, to your professional growth. I want you to access that professional learning when it suits you. I want you to access that professional learning in ways that suit you. 
Um, but the commitment from you is that you accrue a minimum of 40 hours per year. So, um, James, you might uh, might want to comment on this the, the, from the side of uh, the point of view of the participant. Yeah. Um, you guys were expected to log that um, PL through uh, Google Forms, I think we had, yeah. didn't we? Yeah, I'll talk about that side of things. So with obviously implementing that model, obviously we have to have a responsibility around that. So we just had a, a tracking sheet document, which basically each staff member had their own sheet. Um, on that sheet, that was their tracking log, which they where they accrued their 40 hours. In that tracking log, they had to identify the standards um, to ATSL standards that the professional learning they were completing. They had to identify the hours. They had to identify the name of the professional learning. They had to identify the purpose and then review the professional learning that they completed. Um, and again, of that model of putting the adult in charge of the learning, people were choosing professional learning that was relevant to them. And then the most important thing, they reflected upon it and identified how they were going to use that learning moving forward. Um, and something that, you know, I think is important to note that professional learning was still offered within the school setting, but staff chose to go to that professional learning if it aligned to what their needs and interests were. Um uh, Sorry, that's bro. a good point, James, because um, I, I faced a lot of pressure um, after that implementation period to, um, to say to staff on different occasions, this is professional and you must attend. Yeah. And I always argued, and I think I, I even debated with you and your other deputy colleague at different times. <laughs> you did, Brad. The conversations were, Brad, you've got to make them go. And I'd say, no, no, gents. The minute I say you've got to go, I defeat everything that I've talked about. I defeat the purpose. I did say, obviously, if it's compliance training or mandatory training delivered uh, from above, so a departmental expectation, well, that's different. That sits outside of our professional learning model. But any PL that we offer has to be always optional. And I said, I hope that the day comes, and I believe that the day comes, and the day did come, which I can talk about later if you want, uh, where staff appreciate and would acknowledge and identify stuff that was important by themselves. And they did. And when uh, there was a session or two we held just last year, and I took photos of it because I just sat back quietly and I looked at, I think it was 99% staff attendance at some professional learning that I knew was important, but 99% of my staff knew was important, but they chose to go. And that was a really powerful moment, but it didn't, it didn't always work right back in the beginning. And I'll, I'll acknowledge that some staff, even to this day, did not cope with choice. They wanted to be told you go to PL Wednesday at this time and they've ticked that box. There was, a, there was a number of, a small number of staff who struggled to accrue their 40 hours over the year because they, they just couldn't self-manage. I don't think they could manage, um, you know, like their time management. They couldn't work out how to do this without someone telling them what to do. So, so it did, did raise some gaps there. And I think the other thing is um, a leadership team, we acknowledged early on that it couldn't just be a free-for-all. Yeah. And that we did as a um, 
as a leadership team had a, had an obligation to offer some face-to-face training, which we did. Um, and we set up a, a professional learning um, uh, board where we just advertised what was happening and people came if they want. One of the things I did say to the presenters, though, was that I wanted them to offer three opportunities as a minimum. So if you were going to present on, say, cognitive load, you um, you were offering perhaps a Monday morning session at 7 o'clock. You repeated that session, say, on a Wednesday afternoon at uh, 3.15. And you filmed yourself delivering that PL and offered that online for those people who physically couldn't get to either the Monday or the Wednesday session. So we were offering lots of entry points for our staff to access the learning that they wanted to access. And and James, you I mean, you were um, instrumental in in providing the technical background. And, and I remember you asked, could I buy you a, a swivel set up? And I got you that. And you were one of the early adopters with the, um, the swivel uh, technology and that worked well didn't it yeah it did and it really created um we created for our school an unlisted playlist of all our professional learning that each session that was filmed it was uploaded to that playlist it was one of our quick links on our home our school homepage, so staff could go to that anywhere anytime to access mm. that learning um and you know on that point too it was really good from a i guess a leadership perspective because we could see um, and again, through the PDP process, we were having conversations mm-hmm. with our colleagues throughout the process, you know, mm-hmm. of what professional learning they were engaging in. Um, and obviously, if there were some staff members you needed to have conversations with be from a quality control perspective, mm-hmm. or you were able to find and identify, um, you know, certain things and certain interests. And I guess... Two, sometimes staff who went away and completed professional learning of some online courses, you know, they would come back then offer that as a face-to-face um, opportunity to, to further the learning. And I really liked how the model enabled any teacher to be a leader of professional learning. Oh, and that's right. And that was um, in, in my last year, last year, there was some real milestone moments, uh, one which I just referred to when I had just about every staff member at a um, uh, participating in some professional learning. That was an ongoing, too, like it was a, like a six-hour commitment. Um, but they all turned up without anyone telling them. That was one milestone. The second milestone was when I had um, some really uh, early career teachers saying to me, "Can we, can we present? Can we offer some PL to our colleagues?" And I said, of course you can. I said, this is this is what I've dreamed of. This is fantastic. And they did. And they did a great job. So they were developing their leadership skills um, and they got some some instant feedback on the work that was really, um, really resonating for them. Um, and the, the third really big milestone moment, which was something I used to talk to you guys about, was my hope was that the 40 hours would become a figure that no one really cared about. Yeah. that people would stop thinking about, I've got to do 40 hours, to I do as many hours as I likely will need. Now, we were getting people accruing, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours plus at the end yeah. of 2022. So, you know, almost double what our minimum expectation was. So, you know, there were some really, um, some really powerful moments 
um, which I'm pleased that I actually saw whilst I still was still principal. No, um, James, you and I met with uh, one of our secondary colleagues at a certain point because um, at a, a, a significant point in this rollout, we realised that we needed to actually start collecting some good data around evaluating the PL. It was all great to say this is a great idea and people love this and how you know clever are we, but we needed to actually sit down and say, okay, is it making a difference? And how could we determine that? And we started talking um, with Jason McGrath, who uh, is now working with the OECD in, in France. Um, and we started touching on net promoter schools. I don't know if you remember that conversation. I do. Um, and we've, we have since rolled that out with um, two of your other colleagues, Jess Marlou and Jennifer Shelton. Over the last year, we sat down as a little mini think tank and said, how can we start putting something structured in place uh, where our PL is, is monitored and evaluated? So we rolled out a three-phase approach. Uh, the net promoter score was, the, was that instant feedback. And if you were a um, deliverer of PL at Gosford, your obligation was at the very end of that session, you were to ask staff to engage in that net promoter score process. So we got some instant feedback and instant data on what people thought. Can I add on that point, Brad? Yes. For those who mightn't be familiar with a net promoter score, it's often um, used in different businesses in identifying to find out if people are going to be promoting what they did. And I think zero to six is no, they're not going to be taking or, or using what, what you shared. I think six to eight could have been possibly, oh, maybe. Yeah, it was Still all right if someone asked. Mm. But if eight to 10, they're people who are going to be adopting and sharing and going how great that was and we're mm. going to be taking and using. Is that correct from a numbers perspective, Brad? Uh, I'm a bit vague myself. Yeah. Um, from memory, I think that's into it. retirement, but um, I think you're pretty close. I mean, you had to either get a eight, nine or 10 for yeah. it to be of any value. Yeah. And if you got anything less than that, it was like, well, it didn't make any difference. Yeah. Um, but then we implemented, we thought, well, we need to come back to these participants. And again, I'm, I can't remember the, the time frame, but yeah. it might be like in a month's time. Yeah. And there was some, some questions around like, what have you done in relation to that PL? And then there was a long-term check back in, what was the impact? So we didn't get a chance to, to roll that out completely because we were still think tanking that over 2022. And uh, my hope is that this year the, um, the colleagues at GPS will get a chance to roll out that. But we thought, again, for leaders, for presenters, yeah. for participants, to have that rich data at those different points after the PL, um, you would get a really strong sense of, well, did it make a difference? Yeah. Is it and worth running know? again? At that point in time, did it make a difference? And maybe at a different point in time, would it be important? All good questions around professional learning, in my opinion. And and on that note, Bill, because I think into the future, we can talk more about professional learning and going to some avenues. Absolutely. I think that's a really good note to, to finish on. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's actually thought provoking and, you know, in it inspires me and motivates me to continue to think outside the box in that area because, you know, we invest so much time and invest so much money 
Um, and two important things, time and money. Um, and are we getting um, the conversion rate that we want? Yep, yep. Great talking to you, Jimmy G. You too, Bill. Can't wait to catch up next time, mate, to hear about your next adventure. Let's hope my scooter's running next time. <laughs> Fingers crossed, mate. Cheers.